0: Who are the elite athletes? They are the men and women who have dedicated themselves to a level of achievement in a sport that most can only dream about. Whether they reach that pinnacle of success in high school, college, or in the pro game, the vast majority of these great athletes come to realize that their time at the top is only a few years. What does life have in store for them for the next 50, 60, or more years? What challenges and barriers do they face along the way? After the Glory is the show that features conversations with elite athletes as they talk about what led them to greatness and how their special skill set has prepared them for life beyond the playing field. Gary Stern and Lucy Sang are passionate admirers of elite athletes and are proud to bring you their stories. And now, the host of After the Glory, Lucy Sang,
1: and Gary Stern. Hello everybody, Gary Stern here with my partner Lucy Seng. Lucy, how are you? I know you've been a little under the weather, you're doing all right?
2: Pretty good, very excited to have this conversation with our special guest.
1: Yes, uh, you know everybody, uh, Major League Baseball has seen uh, since the 1880s approximately 20,000 people, men, play the game at some point. Think about that, there have been millions maybe a hundred million kids around the world who picked up a glove and picked up a baseball and a bat and only 20,000 were ever good enough, were ever committed enough, were ever passionate enough about the game to take it all the way to the major leagues, the greatest baseball that's played in the world. And one of those players is a gentleman who had a wonderful career with a number of teams from 1981 to 1994, Mr. Tim Leary, uh, I met Tim the uh, LADABC fantasy camp down in Vero Beach, and I was in- incredibly impressed with a number of things. First, his interest and passion for baseball, but more importantly, his intelligence, his just passion for life, and the enjoyment he gets. Now at a age that's close to mine, not quite where I am, but uh, getting there. Um, and 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 he is just a, a remarkable person, perfect guest for after the glory, where we celebrate the elite athlete. We define the elite athlete exactly as I alluded to in my introduction: somebody who reaches the top of their profession, where very few people try and can and ever get there. It's like a physicist who gets the Nobel Prize. There are hundreds of thousands of physicists. There are only a few who get the Nobel Prize. If you get to the major leagues, you have won the Nobel Prize. Tim Leary, it's great to have you on After the Glory.
3: Great, great to be here. Thank you.
1: Um, you know, you're a, a LA-based person, born in Santa Monica, uh, 1958, and uh, attended UCLA in the uh, 1970s. But tell us a little about uh, how baseball started for you, and when you got to that point that you thought, you know, I might just have that ability to make it all the way.
3: Well, organized baseball, Little League, started when kids turned were eight years old. So I played minor Little League at eight, and then major Little League ages nine through 12, and then Pony League, Colt League. High school, uh, summer American Legion baseball for three years. And just putting in all the time really what what gets you the experience and the know-how to, to play. It. And I really didn't think major leagues was a definite possibility until I was a sophomore, junior in college. It just kept progressing and got better. I uh, went to summer ball up in Alaska the year before that in 77 against the best college players around the country. And then the summer of 78, I had a big her was uh, named to USA Baseball, a team representing the U.S. We went to Italy and played in a tournament. And then my junior year, I had a big junior year. So just things clicked. And I put a lot of work into that to make that happen. Well, tell
1: us what work means. In other words, the first thing that people would want to know is uh, you obviously focused on baseball. There are a lot of things kids can do. They can skateboard. They can play basketball. They can uh, play soccer. Uh, What was it about baseball that said to you, this is my game?
3: Well, I loved hitting. I mean, that's a big attraction for kids and little because hitting and I had a strong arm, I could throw fast and throw strikes. So I was a pitcher also. Um, I loved playing catcher.
1: Did you have a parent or some person that urged you on?
3: Well, yeah, both my parents were essentially student athletes, Uh, they both went to college. My dad graduated college, Holy Cross in 1930, and had played football and hockey there. My mom became a club champion golfer. She went to Stanford and then UCLA. So, you know, I had the genetics, so to speak. And the big event that happened, when I just turned 15 years old, my father died. He was an older dad, age 68. And I just just started running. I mean, I really worked out a lot. I became much more determined. Uh, I started running eight miles once a week, like the day after I had a pitch from age 15 on up, and a lot of other running on other days, just so, like, I think part of it was just I was fueled with this inner shock and anger that I just had to express and get it out of me, and the running really helped me with that.
1: Our guest, uh, Tim Leary, uh, and our our audience should know that uh, Tim was a star at Santa Monica High School. He was named to the 1976 All-California Interscholastic Federation first team. He went 19-1 and to lead his American Legion ball team to the national championship, attended UCLA, uh, where he was a three-year letter winner for the Bruin baseball team. And one of the things, of course, that I'm uh, just proud to, to share with you all is Tim went back to school and got his economics degree. Not a lot of athletes do that, and Tim did. Lucy, uh, anything before we head to our first break? Well, I just really appreciate Tim sharing the things that happen in life for an athlete
2: outside of sports that really impact how the trajectory of your athletic career could look like. Thank you, Tim, for being transparent. And when we come back on After the Glory, we'll continue this conversation with Tim Leary. On After the Glory, this is Lucy Sang with Gary Stern, and we'll be back soon.
0: Role models, they can make all the difference. In our world today, they have never been more important. One of the nation's most successful mentoring organizations is Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Their mission is to assist youth in achieving their full potential through innovative and impactful programs and no nonprofit agency does it better. Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of LA serves Jewish children, boys and girls in our local community with a mentoring program that's been going strong since 1915. That's only the beginning. This nationally known agency owns and operates Camp Bob Waldorf its summer camping and weekend retreat programs enrich the lives of youth throughout greater Los Angeles. Then there's a college support program. And last but not least, work that helps kids all over the world through the Teen Talk app. Want to learn more? Go to jbbbsla.org. Donate. Get involved. There's no better way to make a difference.
1: And we're back on After the Glory. This is Gary Stern along with my partner, Lucy Sang and our special guest, Mr. Tim Leary uh former major league pitcher. College is coming to an end. Um, and, and actually, you don't get to the end of the fourth year. Uh, there's a draft. Tell us about that process of deciding, I'm going to turn pro and, and do the minor league route uh, as a preparation for the majors.
3: Well, I was ready to go into pro ball because I'd already done a lot at UCLA as a college baseball player and needed to step up in competition. So it was the right time for me. And I wasn't drafted out of high school. But after my big summer with the Legion, we did the World Series in the summer of 76 in Maine. And a scout for the Mets talked to me. They offered me, which was like low first-round money, whopping $30,000 Fine, sign, which was flattering. But I was all set to go to UCLA. I didn't know anything about the minor leagues. And was a really good student.
1: Three years at UCLA, and then the opportunity does come to go to the majors. Obviously, through the uh, pay your dues time down in the minors. What led you to make that decision?
3: Well, I, again, I was ready. I was 20 years old, and you know, I could always go back to school. I, I had a, a number of units still left, like three quarters worth. So I went back in the fall of 1980, 83, 85, and 87 to graduate. I went to double A straight out of college and did really well in 1980 for the Jackson Mets. But then I didn't get called up at the end of the year. And some other guys that were in double A, like Fernando, got called up. So that's there's motivators all along the way. You do better, do better. The next spring, 81, had a great spring made the team with which is a whole another shocker because you're looking at almost every boy played Little League especially in our era so it's not like water polo or some sports where not everyone plays not even close to it so the competition is fierce you know they can find people throw hard all over the place but actually being able to pitch and throw strikes and have the dedication that's another challenge
1: what in your early part of your career, I know injuries played a part. What uh, what was the impact of? I mean, as a pitcher, that's always one of the big things you're concerned about. And early on, you lost time due to uh, elbow injuries. Talk about that and how it, how it affected you mentally in terms of keeping going. Well,
3: it was devastating. My first major start in Wrigley Field in April of uh, 1981 in the second inning I felt well I ended up, it was a torn flexor muscle in my forearm which they couldn't diagnose particularly well it ultimately took two months before I could really throw properly again just when that happened the strike happened so I was just left to my own for two months to rehab on my own then when I came back in August they had me throw a bullpen and Shea Stadium and then optioned me to A and stuck me right into starting rotation after not pitching for four months uh, so that was pretty brutal and then they had me go to instructional league again and I ended up hurting my shoulder in the winter ball of 81 in Venezuela and it ended up being a pinched nerve but they couldn't diagnose it until the following June and then had no uh, remedy for it i found my own remedy with deep tissue massage and some other things and just battled back and then i pitched 83 and triple a and it was a little, it was pretty shaky as far as my numbers go but i just needed to get back on the mount
2: Tim, with your experience with these various injuries i know you started off by talking about the rehab experience. Can you dive a little deeper from just the general athletic experience and, and perspective? Most of us fans just know that an athlete got injured. You know, they had some a minor injury, a major injury, but most of us don't follow through an athlete's recovery and rehab process. What is that like? What is the toughest part? What do people not know about the recovery process that you'd like to, you know, just shine some light on?
3: Back then, they really didn't have – sports medicine was still in its infancy. Right. So I didn't really do any rehab rehab with the Mets. It was more just damage control on the arm and letting it heal, Uh, and then no communication for two months because of the strike. You know, I just did what I thought was best. But it's tough. I, I really learned that I have to take care of myself outside of the training room. I had two trainers at the time, and they can't deal with everybody properly. I started seeing chiropractors and deep tissue massage and just doing everything I could, learning about what there wasn't even a designed shoulder weight training program at the time that came a little later in the 80s. So It's tough.
1: Is it fair to say, Tim, that there is something about that sense that I need to stay with this. I need to keep going. Uh, I've got a chance, and I'm not going to get discouraged. How do you avoid getting discouraged and just leaving the game? You can go off and do other things. But there's something about your relationship mentally to the game that keeps you going. What is that?
3: Well, in that case, you know, I was a big-time prospect, if you will, because being a high, high draft pick, I was a second pick in the first round. So I knew that my, you know, as long as I got better, things would probably work out, which is the attitude I had. And again, that outside motivator of sort of playing for my dad's, you know, sake, if you will, and everybody around Santa Monica. Very few people play in the major league, especially back then. Big deal for me to actually get to the major leagues. You know, getting back—that's the hard part.
1: Yeah, and that's the key, and I think that's the part that I think people don't understand is that this is an incredible opportunity that few people will ever have and I think that that mindset uh, guides just about everything when we come back we will um, get to the Dodgers uh, and the 1988 season he had a couple of really good seasons earlier with the Milwaukee Brewers especially Uh, when we come back we'll touch on that and more on after the glory (laughs)
2: Hey, this is Lucy Sang from Resiliency Coaching. I am a certified mental performance coach focused on working with athletes transitioning into life after the glory days of sports. I help like-minded people become high performers and thrive in all areas of life. My goal is to serve as your accountability partner and offer different perspectives as you make tough decisions. Learn more about me on Instagram at resiliency underscore coaching. R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching. And thanks for tuning in to After the Glory.
1: And we're back on After the Glory. This is Gary Stern along with my partner, Lucy Sang, and our special guest, Mr. Tim Leary. Every pitcher that I've ever talked to loves to talk about their hitting. And you had an especially good year as a hitter uh, in that year. Talk a little about how a pitcher can still make an impact as a hitter. So few do. Why you? How did you keep that skill?
3: Uh, well, just confidence. I mean, I've seen video of Wade Boggs being interviewed back when he played and asked him about, you know, are, are hitters born or made? He goes, they're born hitters. Like, you got, you have to have some serious I coordination to turn around a 96-mile-an-hour fastball. Fair. So I was – I was a real good fastball hitter, and I had confidence that I could do it. And really, the more important aspect is sacrifice bunting, which I was really good at that. Uh, so I was a good fastball hitter, and as a pitcher back then, you got a lot of fastballs first pitch. You rarely get an off beat. So that was my mo- my goal: is to hit the first hitable fastball I could. Because uh, when you get in deeper in the count, you get more breaking balls and big league breaking balls not hanging breaking balls. Then it, with two strikes as a pitcher, the plate would expand about two inches outside and inside. So it became a lot tougher once you had a strike on you, especially two. And then after that stretch in probably August of that year, I, I had 29 hits in my first hundred bats. Well, I started not seeing so many fastballs. <laughs> there you go. They figured it out. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, Tim, it sounds like for a good few decades, baseball had been your primary focus, your number one thing. You know, was there a time when you started thinking about life outside of baseball or maybe even life after the glory days of baseball? Was there a play? Was there a person who started weaving that thought into your mind? Or, you know, did it just not happen until it happened?
3: Well, I mean, of course, I had thoughts about it. That's why I went back to school get a degree good and in 1982 when I was injured with no remedy for quite a while you know I was seriously thinking about what to do after baseball but then once I got back in it was doing better I just you, you really don't have time to focus on much else training in the day-to-day I knew I wanted to coach at some level playing days and ultimately that's what ended up happening
1: well, our uh, our listeners should know, uh, because I love the subject of pitchers and hitting, Tim was named the uh, National League Silver Slugger pitcher in 1988, and, and, and this one I just love. I absolutely love this. Many pitchers have had maybe one home run in their career. Tim, tell our audience who your one home run was off of.
3: Well, I'll lead up to it. So in spring training, I faced the Phillies and I batted, and this particular pitcher struck me out. Well, then I pitched a game in Veterans Stadium in, in May of 84, and I got a 2 0 count. And he threw a fastball down the middle, and I hit a homer to left field. That was Steve Carlton. So, what a Hall fan. of
1: Famer, Steve Carlton. That that's, that's an incredible thing. That's something you tell your grandchildren. Yeah.
3: And neither one of us got a decision because he came out nine innings and it was tied one to one. I think I came out at some point in the eighth inning. So he has one less win under his belt because of me.
1: <laughs> Amen. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about uh, Tim's uh, life and, and, and his journey since baseball. He uh, went on to play with the Reds uh, and the Yankees, the Mariners and the Rangers, retired in 1994. Tim Leary has that World Series ring with the Dodgers from 1988, that Silver Slugger Award his uh, silver medal, uh, in baseball. He's had a, he had a wonderful career. Um, but I, I think that his, uh, life and journey since then is just as much to be celebrated when we come back on After the Glory.
4: This is Darrell Wayne here to talk to you about the co-creator and co-host of After the Glory, Woodland Hills lawyer, Gary Stern. When Gary's not talking to elite athletes, you can usually find him doing what he's been doing for almost 45 years, navigating the world of government. As a college student and young professional, Gary helped folks deal with federal and state agencies through his work as a caseworker with a local congressman and state senator. That work prepared Gary for a career as a consumer lawyer. Today, Gary still helps people in all walks of life, but his passion nowadays is his service as a mediator, mostly in cases like the ones he's been handling for over four decades where people have been injured in accidents or in connection with their employment. You can learn more about Stern Law, the law offices of Gary N. Stern at his website, www.sternlaw.org. That's S-T-E-R-N. Or you can call him at 818-710-2717. That's 818-710-2717.
1: And we're back on After the Glory. Gary Stern here with my partner, Lucy Sang, and Mr. Tim Leary. Uh, Dodger hero from the uh, 1988 uh, World Series champions, uh, major leaguer from 1981 to 1994. Tim, you get to the end of a career. Uh, the, the money is great. At some point, the, uh, the skill set is not what it once was. Um, and you find yourself deciding, well, I've got to move on. Tell us for you what that transition was like. Was it? Uh, was it foisted upon you? Was it something you decided to do? What was the the process of, of ending your major league career? Well, in
3: 1992, 93, 94, I was age 33, 34, 35. And, you know, I pitched a lot of innings. My velocity was dropping a little bit each year. to Where in 94, I was probably throwing... 90 or 91 like that's high school speed for decent high school pitchers and it's a struggle like i used to always hear well the hitters will let you know well the hitters let me know so i was ready you know to move on and in 94 i didn't make the team with the expos so but i went to triple a for two months and was just doing barely average so I decided to retire in 94 and I came home for a couple of weeks and I get a phone call from my agent who knew Jackie Moore, the third base of the Rangers that needed pitching. So I went down to Anaheim Stadium, they were, they were playing the Angels, and threw in the bullpen for Claude Osteen, the pitching coach, and Kevin Kennedy, the manager. And they liked it and they, I went on the team playing Minnesota with them through a simulated game before batting practice went to Texas and then I was activated and game first game back in July of 94 I came in relief with just one out in the first inning and did well Um, my arm was sore after that that's for sure after not pitching much for a while but I and I pitched I started in six weeks but then the strike was coming and I struck out the last batter I faced Edgar Martinez It's just a sloppy slide.
1: A Hall of and Famer.
3: That was two days before the strike. So I knew I was finished at that point, And I was good with that. I wasn't doing particularly well as a pitcher and wanted to move on, you know, raise my kids and things like that.
1: You know, Tim, uh, you, you've had a wonderful career afterwards. You've coached for Cal State Northridge. Um, yeah, we're an alumni member of the LA Dodger Community Relations Team for a while. I know that you coach. Uh, you've coached at uh, Loyola Marymount and uh, Brentwood School in LA, and and you're a private coach. And, and what all that means is that you're a teacher. Not everybody can teach. And I'm curious if that was a skill set you felt you always had, or did you feel like you had to develop it once you retired?
3: Well, I pretty much always had it, especially once I got to higher levels. You know, I got into pro ball my first full season. Well, it was 1980 and came back and I had signed up for four classes at UCLA and I would go to UCLA baseball field. I, so I got offered to be an assistant coach with, so I did that and before 1980, there weren't a lot of coaches, coaches. Yeah. You had dad's coaching here and there. You didn't have technicians or anything. I had to learn a lot on my own and you learn a lot when you teach because you want to learn more and you it's as much as technical things it's also the emotional part of it and keeping people motivated understanding where they are at that point in time you don't it's not a cookie-cutter approach you have to diagnose what's going on with somebody and you know if it ain't broke don't fix it but if they struggle with things I could really help them and it helped me
1: at age 62 Tim you have two daughters and a son um, uh, and I'm sure you're incredibly proud of them. Uh, but I wonder if you tell our audience a little about, there's an aspect of, of professional sports that people don't think about, and that is the the impact on family.
3: You're held hostage by whatever team for the most part. You know, like I didn't want to get traded away from the Dodgers, but I was. And then I got traded after that season by, by the Reds to the Yankees, which I didn't really want to play in New York again either. But you just, you become numb to any, you can't get too emotional one way or the other. Like when I got traded to the Dodgers, it was in December of 86. And at first I was kind of stunned and not particularly happy because I ended up the season of 86 as the number two starter with the Brewers. And I really loved it there. But then once I started going to winter workouts in January, and it sort of hit me. All right, this is the Dodgers. This just isn't anywhere.
1: The Major League (laughs) journey... And all the trades, I imagine, can be very disrupting to to personal life, just moving around hotels all the time. And our fans may not realize that in, in those days, um, in that time that you played, do you see a difference in, in the way that players uh, move forward with their lives today as opposed to back in your day and before? In other words, all that money that when they retire uh, having played in the 2000s seems like it's a lot different situation than your day
3: yes but also you admit that only three or four percent of players uh, or three to four years is about the average lifespan so people play five years or more there really aren't that many of them uh, so people have to do something you know, when they're done um, I don't really read about what other people do, so to speak, afterwards. Other than if they're a public figure still, like Ron Darling was my roommate with the Mets in AAA in '84, and I think he bounced bounced from thing to thing to do, and then realized he wanted to get back in in baseball at the highest level, and became a broadcaster, and he's done great. I, on the other hand, didn't really want to travel anymore and go all over the place; I'd rather, be you know, one spot because that's a brutal lifestyle traveling all over.
1: Well, it sure is. And uh, uh, we want to thank Tim. Tim, that was a a good way to end this episode because um, your journey is one into teaching. You continue to teach today. Lucy, why don't you close it out for us?
2: Thank you, Gary. And Tim, you know, I wanted to just touch on this as we wrap up this episode, you mentioned, how being a teacher now, it's not just about teaching skill, but also that emotional resiliency. With your last words on this episode today, can you just share with our up and coming athletes, what is it about emotional resiliency that can really change their game and the trajectory of what their athletic career could look like?
3: Well, to try to surround yourself with people that are encouraging and motivating for you, because there's always something else to do. The, keeping that discipline on what to do every day and how to stay focused on you know, your training and the discipline. That's a big thing.
1: Thank you, Tim Leary. It was great to spend time with you down in Florida at Vero Beach. I uh, look forward to seeing you soon again. Uh, Lucy, uh, a, a, a remarkable and wonderful human being who had a great major league career and continues to contribute. Uh, until next time, this is Gary Stern and Lucy saying we thank Tim Leary. For being our guest on After the Glory. Lucy and I hope you enjoyed this edition of After the Glory. As we leave you until next time, we want to thank our team, our producer, Mark Allen, executive producer from Clips Mike Anderson, and our sound engineer and editor, the insane Daryl Wayne. We are also grateful for music by T. Dan Hofstede. And as we close out this episode of After the Glory, we honor our guest, with our theme song, written and sung by my brother in baseball, T. Dan, the master of music from the islands, and the slack key guitar. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and athletic.
4: in the dream on a shooting star Hometown crowd cheering what you are Living large and riding high Razzling and dazzling across the sky Back in the day, so young and strong, we're going to play you can do no wrong. No. But when that fight is through, what you gonna do? Hey, hey, what's your story? What you gonna do after the glory? Step back and take in the door.
3: Every day I'll be congratulatory Hopefully